Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you from Montecito, California. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about inflations, boom and bust cycles, all that kinds of stuff with a guy who knows what he's talking about, Murray Sabrin, who is a retired professor on the topic. But before we get there, I want to kind of give you my take. You know, a number of people told me last week that they really enjoyed the podcast with William Green, who spoke about, you know, what we can learn from the greatest investors we have ever known. And one line that still haunts me from that interview is William's recounting of Sir John Templeton saying that the four most dangerous words for an investor are, this time it's different. Well, why does that haunt me? Well, listen, the economy is in a massive boom right now. There is no doubt about that. There's, there, there's no question about that. So the question really is, and you're probably asking yourself, I know you're asking yourself because you're asking me, should you be investing when the market is booming like it is? So I'm not going to answer it for you, but what I will do is pose a few different questions and thoughts for you. And what is, first and foremost, what is the alternative to investing right now? I mean, inflation is running at about 6%. So what that means is that if you leave money in the bank, you're guaranteeing a loss of 6%, right? That's that's not making 6% or 1%. That's losing 6% per year. In other words, as Robert Kiyosaki says, famously, savers are losers. Of course, it's not meant to be mean. It's meant to be sort of tongue-in-cheek as a factual thing. 6% per year loss in purchase power means you are guaranteeing yourself a loss of 6% per year. Nevertheless, it's important for you to think about what you're doing, and you really can't think intelligently without some kind of a framework. And I would argue, and I think a lot of would for investors, that macroeconomics does provide us with some level of framework of the way we should be thinking because it involves business cycles. And business cycles are intimately involved with, you know, businesses, small businesses, and, and that involves the stock market. And all markets follow ultimately each other. And so that's why we investors need to understand how it works. However, we also have to understand that these historical macroeconomic models not don't don't necessarily provide complete predictive information for us as well after all we have a new world order that's you know that involves 
easy, easy money, massive amounts of liquidity and pandemics that don't seem to be going away, right? I mean, this whole Omicron thing, what is this all about? Is this going to create a bigger problem for us in the economy too? I don't know. Anyway, I'm not here to give you financial advice here, but I will urge you to think and not act purely out of fear because that's what most people do, right? People just are worried. Right now, it's a fear of missing out, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, for example, in cryptocurrency or whatever, uh, or the uh, fear of investing at a time when you shouldn't invest. I mean, and and frankly, that sort of uh, doomsday uh, type uh concern has been you know debilitating it's been crippling for some investors who've sat on the sidelines for five or six years now while the rest of us frankly have been making money hand over fist so one of the questions that i ultimately get is okay buck yeah i get what you're saying i mean we're in a hot economy we gotta invest but you know it's kind of scary so what are you doing well again i'm not here to give you advice but here's the thing I'm personally not doing much differently because, you know, I can't really predict the future. You know, I continue to invest in high quality real estate through our investor club. Uh, And the stuff, the types of assets that we're picking out there are already cash flowing, but also have a huge opportunity to continue for value add purposes, right? And there's an opportunity there to create equity. We're not doing the whole buy and hope game. And my reasoning in continuing to just invest, frankly, is that in doing so, sometimes the wind at my back uh, will give me ridiculously high returns as it has done recently and, and frankly is going to probably do so over the next couple of years. And then when things tighten up, you know, my assets are still in high quality assets that are likely to weather the storm better than most other investments that I could possibly make because I know them well. I know their quality operators, quality real estate, quality, you know, markets. There's a thesis behind the whole thing. So failure is, in my mind, you know, complete failure and loss of capital is extremely unlikely. So, but that's my own philosophy, right? To create your own, you got to just learn as much as you can and think for yourself and don't be you know, scaredy cat. Don't just be running around worrying about stuff. Be rational. In this week's interview with retired professor and former libertarian Senate candidate Marie Sabrin, this is a really good place for you to start if you haven't had a chance to really start, you know, educating yourself on business cycles and that kind of thing. And so when we come back, Marie Sabrin. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Well Formula Podcast is Mary Sabrin. Now, Mary is an emeritus professor of finance at Ramapau College of New Jersey, and he was also the New Jersey Libertarian Party nominee for governor in 1997, having also sought the Republican nomination for U.S. Senate twice as well. He is also the author of Navigating the Boom Bus Cycle. An Entrepreneur Survival Guide, which was just released this October of 2021. And that is what we're going to talk about today. Murray, welcome to Wealth Formula Podcast. Well, thank you, Buck. Appreciate the opportunity to uh, help educate people and uh, give them some tools to navigate the boom-bust cycle. Well, yeah, and this is this is really important stuff because as you and I talked about offline, we're really, you know, my group uh, here, we're you know, we're investors and we, we tend to be investors in alternative assets, uh, 
people who've got a fair amount to lose when these markets, you know, boom and bust the way they do. So it'll be great to hear your take on things. You know, let me just jump right into it, Murray. One of the questions I've got for you is the historically the inversion of the yield curve signals a depression or recession, I should say. And in 2019, the U.S. witnessed an inverted yield curve, but there was no recession or depression or anything. Maybe you can, you know, back back up and just tell everybody how you define or how uh, the yield curve uh, inversion is defined, what the significance is of that, and why it didn't follow what it normally does in 2019. Sure. Uh, the yield curve inverts when the Federal Reserve, after years of easy money, decides it's time to raise interest rates and pull back the liquidity that it has injected into the economy. And when the short-term rates go above long-term rates, since they're most sensitive to the Federal Reserve policy, you get uh, a scramble for funds at the banks and short-term rates start going up. And uh, that, 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 what that does is reveal the, what's called the malinvestments or the distortions in the boom that were unsustainable if it weren't for uh, easy money. Easy money makes possible a lot of investments that would never have occurred because uh, you depress interest rates. What, what does that do? It increases the net value, net present value of future investments. And boom, you've got people flooding money into the real estate market and other markets where they see that the rate of return over 10, 15 years is great because you have a, a lower discount rate. So again, this is pretty, pretty much elementary from a corporate finance perspective. And so what happened in 2019 is really fascinating. I, uh, several people have written about it, but I talk about it in the book, is that the yield curve inverted and then in the first quarter, COVID hit. And when COVID hit, the economy was locked down. The economy imploded. Unemployment went to 16%. Number of people have lost jobs. Businesses were closed. And what you had was the federal government under the Trump administration flooding the economy with all sorts of stimulus money in order to backstop all the businesses and employees that lost their jobs. Well, the Fed didn't sit idly by. They started pumping money in. And before you know it, uh, there was $4 trillion of new money created by the Federal Reserve in a very short period of time. So basically, the normal, quote, normal business cycle would have occurred sometime in either 2020 or early 2021. But because of COVID, you got not a recession, but you got an economic implosion because of Federal Reserve, I'm sorry, federal government uh, locking down the economy. And of course, states, states were following suit. So you had a horrible situation. And then the Fed put the uh, pedal to the metal. And um, here we are a year later, and uh, we still have a uh, uh, upward, upward sloping yield curve because the Fed has started to reduce its uh, money printing, but nowhere near what it would take to, to invert the yield curve. So uh, uh, last year was, uh, I guess, uh, going to be studied for decades to come as to what happened to the economy. It was the shortest uh, downturn in U.S. history. As you know, the stock market declined at 30, 35% in a few weeks, which was the shortest bear market in history. And so... Um, it's very unusual to see what happened in 2020 as a repeat. Will it happen in the future? It could. No, no one can rule that out because obviously we don't know what the future will bring if another pandemic occurs or some other event that could cause um, the, the uh, economy to implode in a very short period of time. But yeah, the yield curve, looking back in history, is probably one of the best, if not the best indicator that portends a recession six months to a year down the road. So basically, Ms. 
it was essentially hidden behind everything else that had happened in that period in that massive uh, liquidity injection from the Fed and the government intervention, essentially. When we look at what's going on right now, uh, obviously, we've got this massive boom, right? It's massive boom. And when you look at all of the money that's in the market, I mean, it's, it's sort of obvious why. You mentioned some, you know, the Fed tightening a little bit. We'll see if that happens. But, you know, as investors uh, or maybe business owners, what kinds of signals should we be looking for that might suggest a change in the, uh, the business cycle? Yeah, there are several. Um, obviously, the ones that are most sensitive to interest rates would be commodity prices because uh, it takes a long time to put a, get a mine into the, into production. Uh, other commodity prices uh, are very sensitive to the to the business cycle. So you look at the CRB index and some of the components. Copper is considered one of the best. Uh, uh, boom and bust indicators because copper is used uh, so widespread in, in the economy in construction and in other manufacturing sectors. So the price of copper is a good leading indicator as well. And uh, you have other indicators as well. Uh, heavy duty uh, trucks is a, is a good indicator. So when you drill down in the motor vehicle sec- uh, sector, you see all these subsets of, of uh, uh, areas of the economy that are very uh, sensitive. Steel would be another example, the production of steel, uh, iron ore, coal, things like that. Um, oil is a kind of interesting s- situation. Uh, we saw the price of oil skyrocket to $140 during the housing bubble. Then it collapsed, I think, $35 or $40 which was really uh, bizarre to see it collapse of about 80% or so, 70% in a very short period of time. So, but if you look at some of the big macro, the unemployment rate, by the way, is a very good indicator as well. When that bottoms out and sort of goes sideways, the unemployment rate, and starts creeping up, you know a recession is on hand because businesses are seeing their sales go down. And what's one of the first things they do? They lay off people. So uh, again, you can do that by industry as well. So you look at this... um, uh, economically sensitive industries, you see the, what the employment rate is there, whether they're hiring or not. And then, of course, one of the last things that uh, we, I would look at is retail sales and, and divide that into discretionary versus uh, uh, consumer staples. Consumer staples don't have much of, cycl- of cyclical uh, trends, but uh, obviously discretionary items like automobiles and uh, housing and other things, uh, high ticket items are very sensitive to the business cycle. You know, one of the questions I wonder about myself is, you know, you've talked about a lot of the sort of the uh, Econ 101, you know, type signals uh, that the economy gives. We don't really live in that world anymore, though, in some regards, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, we, we live in some unparalleled times where we've seen some, you know, uh, unparalleled um, interventions. And how do you use some of this information to kind of guide you and how has that changed over time given where we are now in other words the reality is a different it seems to me that some you know it it seems different right it it seems like the old rule book not that you throw it out but it's it's, some of the rules have changed how do you how do you deal with that this is why it's so important to understand the macro economy and how it's affecting the micro economy, which is the world in which business people live in. They have to make decisions every single day about capital investment, hiring, firing, uh, relocation of plants, uh, uh, the supply chain, which, of course, 
is the, is the, the buzzword for, for this uh, year because uh, it's been so disrupted because of COVID and other factors. And so you really have to have a good economic framework in order to understand supply and demand, which is Economics 101. And when you understand supply and demand, then the next thing you do is they say, uh, follow the money. Where is the money being created? Where is it flowing through the economy? And how is it impacting different sectors of the economy? The average business owner, the average uh, CEO, I think, uh, I don't know if the, the word should be average, but the typical CEO and CFO are not doing a deep dive in the Federal Reserve database to see exactly what's happening to all these time series. Of course, they're reported by by uh, different government agencies throughout the uh, uh, month, such as the unemployment data, the producer price index, the CPI index, uh, consumer sentiment, which is a very good indicator as well. And so uh, to unravel all that, you really have to have uh, an economic theory, if you will, to explain it. Now, in the book, I go into uh, the different economic theories and which one, which one I think is the best one to explain how the cycle unravels folds and what to look for, especially in your particular business, because every sector is different in terms of where they are in the cycle, and then um, make decisions that uh, don't get you caught up in what Greenspan said in 1996, irrational exuberance, where you're expanding at a rate that is unsustainable, because it looks like the trees are going to be grown to the sky. And we know, Buck, trees don't grow to the sky. Uh, they slow down or sometimes they die. And uh, that's why it's important to really understand the macro economy to a certain extent, but yet really have a pulse on your industry. Because I think that's really the key. And with all these trade journals out there and online information, and of course, your own revenue flow, you know exactly what's happening on a day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month basis. So you can get those reports if you're the CFO of a large company or the COO, or you're a small mom and pop shop on Main Street, uh, you know exactly what's happening with your sales data. And then you can plan accordingly based upon trends, because a lot of these things uh, are not uh, one offshore things they they take place over several months or several years where do you think in terms of right now you mentioned a bunch of indicators for the most part it seems to me that we're we are very steep in that boom still is there any indication from your end that this is slowing down anytime soon well, it depends on what the Fed does. Uh, not to give a cop-out answer, but uh, uh, the Fed announced this week that, that they don't think inflation is transitory. So that was a change in their view of the uh, of the inflation picture that uh, they, of course, created by by boosting the money supply 25% or 27% uh, last year, which is an extraordinary injection of liquidity into the U.S. economy. So again, if the Fed sees inflation ramping up and... and um, uh, Every, what, uh, second week of the month, the, uh, the, uh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics announces the, uh, the um, CPI and the PPI. And uh, if those show that the inflation is accelerating or not slowing down, the Fed may act preemptively or, let's, let's this way, force the, fans, force the Fed's hands to raise rates before they wanted to. And that would start the countdown to when the yield curve inverts and when the stock market peaks out. Um, and so one indicator which says that the stock market is grossly inflated, which you're probably familiar with, is the Buffett indicator. The, the market capitalization of the stock market to, to the GDP is now 50% higher where it was when the dot-com bubble burst. So that indicator is now flashing yellow 
probably maybe even red. The question is, how high can it go in this cycle? And again, nobody knows the answer to that question. But what we're seeing is these periodic downdrafts in the economy, which shows that there are a lot of nervous investors out there and money managers that can drop the stock market three, four percent in one day. That's not the sign of a healthy market and then rebound three, four percent in one day. So again, what is, I think this is telling us is that there's a there's a battle going on between the bulls and the bears in the economy. There are some people that are pretty bearish. There are some people that are pretty bullish. And so that's what makes markets, uh, supply and demand and people's perception of the future. Seems to me that the irony here is that some of the threats, the more systemic threats uh, to the economy are... Uh, potentially what's what's keeping it booming uh you know for example if you look at with covid and now you know sure the fed could be thinking about tightening up uh, monetary policy but they've also you know have the looming threat of uh, a new you know a new strain of covid that creates another round of of uh, shutdowns and that kind of thing and then so we're kind of in no man's land in that regard and it's it that's um I feel like that's one of the biggest challenges because you you just don't you're not dealing with just the economy here. Yeah, yeah this this is why uh, I think that a lot of CEOs and CFOs stay up late at night because they're trying to figure out what will the economy look like three five years down the road. Because remember, a lot of these capital expenditure plans take place over three to five years or longer. And so, uh, if you discount COVID, which of course you could. By engaging in major capital investment and then seeing the economy implode for six months or a year or so, or any time in between, that may give you pause as to doing any major capital investment because there's too much uncertainty. And that's exactly what happened, by the way, during the Great Depression, when economic policy was changing so much, it was hard for business people to plan for three to five years. And so the depression dragged on for the whole decade instead of uh, being a pretty short and swift uh, downturn, which got rid of a lot of the uh, distorted investments of the 1920s. So again, uh, as I told my students before I uh, left teaching uh, last year, I think we're, we're going to see days where people, where the stock market could go down 5 10% in one day. I mean, we have, after all, we saw a 22% decline in October 1987, and uh, then the market rallied. Uh, if, you, if you look at a long-term chart, it was just a little blip. But um, the, the roaring 20s could be, to this century, what it was in, the, uh, in uh, the previous century. A lot of volatility, a lot of upward movement. And then uh, the interesting thing I came up with when I was doing the research is that there seems to be a 100-year cycle in the stock market, the panic of 1819, the, the forgotten depression of 1920, and then the implosion of 2020. So if that's the case, um, well, we know what happened in 1929 after the roaring 20s. So who knows what 2029, 2030 could look like? Uh, in fact, there's one indicator. I, I have to mention this because it's public information. Tom McClellan from uh, Seattle, who does the McClellan Oscillator, he came up with an interesting chart, which was published years ago, showing the relationship between the stock market and the price of oil lagged 10 years. So he shows whenever the oil price peaks, 10 years later, the stock market peaks. And so he's showing that since the price of oil peaked in 2014, 2024 could be a very bad year for the stock market and the incumbent in the White House, which now is Joe Biden. So uh, that's something to look at in terms of uh, fairly short-term uh, prognosis, or at least forecast, based upon this one 
indicator, oil and the stock market, which he, he doesn't have any explanation. He just came across it in doing his research about prices. And he saw, he saw that there was this correlation between the stock market and the price of oil with a 10-year lag. You know, one of, the, one of the questions I asked myself a little bit, too, is, again, when we look at these cycles and we talk about 100-year cycle and, you know, big depressions, uh, you know, certainly we've had other economists uh, on, on the show specifically talking about the ni- 1930s. We have ITR Economics is another group we've had it's predicting a depression in the 30s, uh, a big confluence of debt and, you know, uh, the other issues that are that they think are going to happen then one of the questions i often ask myself though again is is this different now because the rule book is different like i mean the fed can and does things that it's never done before mm-hmm. right so what's what's just stopping a injection in perpetuity well here's the thing that i believe could happen based upon what i was studying in the 1970s when i was studying my uh working on my uh, doctoral dissertation, which, by the way, was on inflation and how it spreads through the economy. And so the key thing to the uh, U.S. economy is really the dollar, because the dollar is the reserve currency. And if you recall, in 1979, 1980, we came very close to a total runaway inflation where the dollar was imploding. The price of gold nearly doubled in a few months because there was a flight out of the dollar. The Chinese were irrelevant to the world economy. Now they're sitting on trillions of dollars of uh, U.S. uh, debt and uh, dollars per se. So the question is, how long will overseas investors hold on to the dollar, especially foreign governments and foreign central banks, which basically prop up the U.S. dollar? Because uh, when you have a demand for something, its price stays relatively high. And so the dollar is fairly strong given in a world of uh, fiat currencies relative to other currencies. But uh, the point is a day of reckoning could come when in the future uh, foreign holders of a dollar say enough is enough. We are worried about the inflation in the United States, which is depreciating the value of our dollars. And so we're going to start dumping those dollars, maybe not all in one day or one week or one month, maybe over several years. And you see a slow, steady drip of the dollar declining. And uh, that could signal that uh, the Fed has really lost control because if they try to prop up the dollar by buying up dollars, by creating dollars, that's when you go into a really hyperinflation scenario. Yeah, although although on the other side of that, it's not like we're the only country in the world that's doing this, right? Absolutely. And so in in many regards, we're sort of the least ugly economy in the world. <laughs> well, th- th- this is why we are in an experiment since August 1971 when Nixon closed the gold window and made the dollar a fiat currency. So we are in one of the longest monetary experiments in world history and no one knows exactly what the end result will be the question is can we muddle along with paper money and the fed uh inflating and deflating and inflating and deflating uh, like a rubber band if you keep on stretching it long enough it's going to eventually break so the question is when could the economy break because the uh, underlying institution that we need to have a sound economy stable money sound money if you will may be in jeopardy it's a few terms that you use. I think it'd be useful for people to know about. One is uh, the public economy versus a private economy. Yeah, Can you talk about that. Yeah, the private economy is something we all participate in. We have a business where work for a private enterprise, and we have retailers, um, e-commerce. That's the private economy based upon supply and demand. That's where most of the action takes place. Then, of course, we have government spending and the Federal Reserve. 
So government spending does what? It takes money out of the private economy, um, uh, shuffles it through Washington, through the different agencies, and then dispenses it to the different agencies for various social and uh, uh, military programs. And then you, have, then you have the Federal Reserve trying to manage this by targeting short-term interest rates. So there's a tug of war going on in the natural economy, the, the, the private economy, which, by the way, is, is something that very few people talk about in the mainstream media. The tendency of prices in a natural free market economy is for prices to slowly fall, as we saw in the last third of the 19th century, when we had fairly sound money and tremendous productivity and investment in infrastructure, in capital goods. Real wages were going up virtually every year. Now, there were bumps in the road, the, uh, the Panic of 1873, the, the, the Depression of the 1890s. But basically, it was a great period for the U.S. economy. It became the world uh, a great economic power during this period. And that, of course, carried through the 20th century and now in the 21st century. So all these things come together in the data. And what I try to do is sort it out in terms of uh, what's the good stuff that's happening in the economy. And the really good stuff is that there are incredibly entrepreneurs, men and women who are just building great businesses from scratch, uh, despite all the regulations. That's, of course, that's another part of the public economy, all the regulations that businesses have to deal with whether it's minimum wage laws, whether it's um, uh, environmental regulations, or whether it's uh, uh, labor uh, regulations. There are a host of things that businesses have to deal with. And of course, the smaller the business, the less room for error because they're working on tight margins. And if their costs are going up because of regulation, they have, they have a tough time staying in business or at least generating enough revenue to grow the business. So you wrote a book called Why the Federal Reserve Sucks. <laughs> What's it about? <laughs> well, what I did in that book was uh, look at the testimony of Greenspan and uh, Bernanke during the um, the pre-dot-com bubble, uh, the dot-com bubble, the uh, pre-housing bubble, the housing bubble. And it looked like they were pretty clueless as to what was going on, given that they're supposed to be pretty savvy people. In fact, the irony is that uh, Greenspan wrote a wonderful article in 1966 called Golden Economic Freedom, where he pinpointed the problems of the, of the Great Depression on the Fed's easy money policies of the 1920s. And so when he became Fed chairman in June of 1987, what did he do? He did the same thing that the Federal Reserve did in the 1920s put the pedal to the metal and increase the money supply, uh, flooded the economy with liquidity, and we got the dot-com bubble and then the housing bubble, which, of course, um, uh, Bernanke uh, didn't do anything to stop when he was appointed in uh, 19, uh, 2006 after Greenspan served for 19 years. So, again, you look at the testimony that they made in Congress, you look at the uh, record of the economy, and um, what they're there to do, basically, is to, um, uh, for lack of a better term, do the bidding of Wall Street, which loves short term, which loves low interest rates in order to have funds to boost the uh, stock market and, and the, uh, other markets. What happens when, you know, if and when, I mean, obviously it's, it's uh, the big picture of it is, is clear that it wouldn't, would not be good for the economy, but okay. Realistically, people talk, people, people have been talking about, you know, the fed and tightening, uh, tightening of monetary policy and, you know, trying to get inflation under rain and rates going up, all of these things. But given, given the fragility of, of the economy, do you really think that's realistic? And if it, if it does happen, if rates do start going up, aren't we kind of in a, in a really bad place mm -hmm. uh, for that to happen just in terms of the setup? 
Yeah, it could happen what happened in 1966, to do a little economic history analogy. The Fed was tightening because of the Vietnam War and the Great Society programs, and uh, LBJ got very concerned, and he called the chairman of the Federal Reserve down to his ranch in uh, Texas and basically uh, uh, hovered over him and said, uh, what are you doing? Uh, You've got to keep rates down. And we had a mini recession in 1966. The Fed put the pedal to the metal. The economy overheated in the late 60s, and then we got the 69-70 recession. The Fed could do the same thing this time around. The economy starts slowing down. The stock market uh, tanks. And um, the Fed says that we can't uh, continue the pain out there. And so they do another round of quantitative easing and we're back to the races again. So, again, nothing is unusual. I should say nothing is off the table in terms of what the Fed could do because of their reaction to uh, the economy after it slows down its um, uh, quantitative easing. The book is uh, the latest book, Navigating the Boom, Bus Cycle and Entrepreneur's Survival Guide. Tell us about it. Who's it written for? Who's Who can benefit from this book? Well, I think there are several target audiences. Obviously, it's the small business owner, the CFOs, the COOs, the CEOs of uh, major corporations. It's also, I think, a great book for college business students or MBA students who really want to know what's going on in the economy. How can we tell when the economy starts uh, peaking and when the bottom occurs? Because ironically enough, for some business people, if they're savvy enough, you pick up a lot of cheap assets at the bottom of an economic cycle and you ride that sucker up in the next boom and you can make a lot of money, which is what uh, Sir John Templeton did in the 1930s when he bought stocks. He, I think he, uh, his goal was to buy quality companies that were selling for about a dollar in 1932-33 when the market imploded 90%. And he made a ton of money during the 1930s because the Fed was pumping so much money in. The stock market had a big rally in the 1930s. So again, one strategy is to get some cash in your portfolio. Listen, Warren Buffett has $149 billion on the balance sheet of Berkshire Hathaway. So what is he telling the world? He doesn't think there are many good values out there. And so therefore, he's keeping his powder dry, possibly for the next downturn to uh, buy up assets, either companies or stocks. Remember, he, he wrote an op-ed in October 19, 2007, um, actually 2008, uh, just before the market bottomed in March of 2009, saying, hey, I'm buying U.S. stocks. There are great companies out there at uh, good prices. Of course, he was a few months early, but over the long term, those stocks turned out to be really good buys for Buffett in October 2008. Is the book written at a level where you don't necessarily have to have a lot of financial or economic education before? I mean, I know a lot of, it's interesting, you know, with my audience, they're such highly educated individuals, but you know, if you were a biochemistry major and you never took econ except for macro and just to get your requirement done 25 years ago, then, mm-hmm. you know, it, you don't have a lot of knowledge, but is this uh, the type of book that would be good for, you know, a smart person who's interested in learning how things work in general, or you have to have some background? Absolutely. I, I try to write these books for the target audience, and also people who don't have a background in economics and finance, because I think that's one of my strengths as a teacher and writer is I can explain fairly complex uh, concepts to a general audience, because these concepts are pretty common sense when you think about it. And so uh, I've gotten great reviews. The testimonials are in the front of the book, and I'm really proud of them because they talk about how the book is an indispensable guide for people who really want to know uh, how the economy uh, unfolds over time and uh, and what the landmarks are to look at. So uh, I think anyone who, who's, who's curious about the economy, who wants some more insight about the economy, uh, can pick it up. And by the way, the publisher has uh, 
a 20% discount on it with a code BOOM20. And if you go to my blog, murraysabron.com, it, it links you to the, uh, to the publisher's uh, books uh, website. And you can, uh, uh, it's Black Friday every day at Business Experts Press for the book. So, okay, so you can find the book at your, your website, www.murraysabrin.com. That's S-A-B-R-I-N.com. Um, is there, can you also get it on Amazon or any of the Absolutely, other? Absolutely, but the, the, the publisher's discount is not available on Amazon. So uh, that's the nice thing about uh, uh, the publisher. They really think this book has tremendous, uh, could have tremendous impact in terms of people reading it, understanding it, and uh, having more educated uh, entrepreneurs out there. Good stuff, Murray. I, I really do appreciate your time and uh, looking forward to reading the book. I have, I have a copy. I just sort of skimmed a little bit so far, but um, but I want to get into it a little bit more. And I appreciate your your willingness to to teach you know those of us who don't know as much about this stuff. Thank you so much, Buck. Appreciate it. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hope you enjoyed it. I really love uh, talking to guys like Murray. I mean, he's just, you know, he's been around for a long time. He's obviously a very smart guy. He understands the macro element of it, and he's also seen things happen historically. So this is the kind of guy you really need to learn from. I would highly recommend picking up a copy of this book. I mean, again, it's one of these things that, you know, you got to have some information if you're making decisions. It might not change what you do. I mean, I think it's not a bad idea to, you know, think about it as, okay, good markets, bad markets, who knows, hotter, colder, volume average in, and overall, since we're investing in high quality assets, things will be fine. I mean, that's frankly what I do, because I just don't think there's a, a way to be, you know, to predict the future. And um, people are trying and when they do, they usually miss. And and so there's really no point in my view. The alternative is not to invest. And as we talked about before, you know, right now inflation's running at about six percent. So, you know, you've gotta you've got to figure out what you're gonna do for yourself. But again, a good place to start is by educating yourself and uh, I'd highly recommend picking up a copy of Murray's book. Now, before we go, I do want to remind you that if you're enjoying the show, you think I'm doing a good job, make sure to visit WealthFormula.com and uh, where it says, leave us a review, go ahead and do so. Would love to get some feedback. It helps us as we get more five-star reviews. And uh, if you haven't subscribed to the show, do that as well. Helps us move up in the rankings and so makes it easier for me to continue very quality guests like Murray Sabrin like we had today. That's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Save You with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.